There are a multitude of compliance issues related to medical directors, but as the saying goes, you can't live with them, you can't live without them. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, I'm going to dive into the world of medical directors, focusing on medical director compensation and how we document and defend medical directorships. The government has had a long focus on medical directorships. In fact, as Stark Integrity listeners know, uh, I was involved in a case back in the late 90s, and actually the case was settled in 1996, 1997. Uh, when I went in-house, immediately, uh, immediately after, but within a few months, there was a case in Kansas City, Missouri. It's commonly known as the Anderson case, but it involved two brothers uh, called the LaHue brothers. And the allegations were that the, the medical center entered into sham medical directorships with these two physicians, referring physicians, with the intent to induce the referring physicians' referrals. The hospital paid the doctors annually, each of the doctors, $75,000. But through testimony, uh, because they did not have timesheets, through testimony, uh, it was alleged that the doctors only worked two hours uh, a week. And if you multiply all that out and divide it, that becomes about $750 per hour, which the court held, you know, based upon the facts, that that was four times fair market value. The hospital system, this is Baptist Medical Center in Kansas City, Missouri, in September of 1997, uh, ended up paying back to the government $17.5 million. And the case targeted the chief executive officer, the chief operating officer and the two physicians, and possibly with jail time, and including two lawyers, outside lawyers included. And the reason why that case, the the Anderson case with the LeHue brothers is important from my historical perspective is when I filed the first annual report for the system uh, that I was uh, the general counsel and the organizational integrity officer for, after I filed the first annual report, Modern Healthcare in September of 1997 had an article that basically was comparing and contrasting the St. Joe Regional Medical case in South Bend, Indiana with the Kansas City case. Because as Sark Integrity listeners know that the St. Joe case from South Bend 
two doctors, doctors Addison Farr, went to jail, went, went to jail for two years. The other went to jail for three years for a bad financial arrangement. And only the doctors were targeted. In the Baptist Medical Center case, not only were the doctors targeted, but also the, the chief executive officer, chief operating officer, and the two physicians. And so Modern Healthcare was comparing and contrasting the Anderson case with the St. Joe case uh, from a pure equity perspective, uh, indicating that at, at the St. Joe case, no administrator or attorney was actually targeted, although I can tell you in the settlement agreement, the attorney that did represent the hospital at the time was barred from representing the hospital in South Bend for a period of five years. So the lawyer was cited, uh, but ultimately you know, no executive or attorney actually was targeted for potential jail terms. So I bring up that case because it tells you how long the government has been looking at medical directorships. And in this case, we were dealing with not only the anti-kickback statute, but also the Stark 1. And so the, in the settlement, uh, at, at this point, Stark only applied to laboratory tests. And so because these physicians referred laboratory tests, and they felt that the medical director compensation was above fair market value. They also indicated that there was a Stark Law violation. So this goes back to 1997. So in this episode, I'm gonna talk a little bit about medical directorships and how what information that you need to look at if you go, are going to create a medical directorship and monitor a medical directorship. And I'm gonna emphasize monitoring of a medical directorship because I think that that is materially important. So let's give some context. There are basically five types of medical directors. Uh, so one is just a medical director generally. So you have just one general medical director that is to look at the total aspect of the provider. So it's a, it's a general, and that's not typical. Usually a, a chief medical officer would be in that capacity, but you could have a medical directorship that has a general obligation to monitor the performance of the organization. The second type is a service line medical director, and this is the one that I'm most familiar with with organizations where the physician is actually monitoring a particular service line like oncology or cardiology or orthopedics and a lot of times these medical directors are actually required uh, based upon certification uh, for that service line you also have medical directors of clinical research there also are medical directors of clinical operations so you look at the operations they monitor the day-to-day -day operations they implement and monitor policies and procedures they oversee non-physician practitioners, and they're also responsible for improving quality of care and reducing cost, etc. And the last one is, or the fifth one, is a medical director of quality management. And that role is exactly what it says. You, you monitor the quality outcomes of the particular provider. When evaluating medical directorships from a compliance and legal perspective, uh, the two big issues that we're dealing with are fair market value and commercial reasonableness. And obviously on Stark Integrity, I have multiple episodes that deal with both of those subjects. But both of those issues are paramount issues as we are looking at uh, the establishment and monitoring of medical directorships. So let's first talk about commercial reasonableness. You know, from a commercial reasonableness perspective, we have to evaluate as to why are we 
engaging a physician to perform medical director administrative services. And so you have to make a business and medical case for the establishment of the medical directorship. And there was one case that I do want to point out. This is United States versus SCCI Hospital Houston, where the government challenged the commercial reasonableness of the hospital by engaging in three physicians to perform medical director services over the same service line. First off, you have to evaluate the, the number one, the establishment of the medical director arrangement, but number two is the number of medical directors. And in this case, they had three medical directors, like I said, and it was challenged that having three medical directors over a single service line was not deemed, again, this is the allegation, was not deemed to be commercially reasonable. I had a case a few years ago where I had a client call me, and this was a rehab hospital. And they had seven orthopedic surgeons that were medical directors. And at first I'm going, whoa, I'm not quite sure that I can defend seven orthopedic surgeons to be a medical director over a rehab facility. But the more I got into the facts and circumstances, uh, these were not just general orthopedic surgeons. They each had a particular specialty, like one dealt with the hand, one dealt with the back, etc. And so when I evaluated what each medical director was doing, the services were separate and unique from all of the other medical directors. One of the things I really zoned in on is the meetings that the medical directors were participating in. Were all seven medical directors in attendance? Uh, or do we just need to have one of the medical director kind of being the chief or main medical director with all of the other medical directors being what I would call sub-medical directors uh, so or assistant medical directors? A lot of these are, you know, the facts and circumstances. Can we establish the need for the position and also the number of physicians who are serving in that capacity? So when we're looking at the commercial reasonableness, you have to look at the size of the hospital, the number of patients, the quality of activities and involvement, uh, so for the need of the medical direction, uh, the number of regular committee meetings that the medical directors are to participate in, and also the quality of hospital management. And so if you need to have a physician to supplement non-physician management, then that could be something that you could compensate a physician for under a administrative medical directorship. So now I'm going to focus on the compensation arrangement or methodology of compensation. So there are basically two general forms of compensation for medical director administrative services. The hourly payment, so we're going to pay the physician for each hour worked and documented or we can do an annual stipend or monthly stipend where we are projecting the number of hours and multiplying the projected number of hours by an hourly rate that is consistent with fair market value. So this way we do not have to go month by month with a variable amount of payment. We can have a set payment, but then it becomes a compliance issue to monitor the arrangement to make sure that physicians are performing medical director administrative services consistent with the projected number of hours. So obviously from a compliance perspective, it's easier to pay by the hour. Again, I'm focusing on the compliance perspective, not the operational perspective. To pay the physicians by the hour, so once the hour is worked and documented, we pay only for those hours worked. Otherwise, if we're paying for an annual stipend, 
then we have to monitor the hours to make sure they're consistent with the projected number of hours. So next, I, I want to talk about compensation stacking. So when we're paying a physician for these medical director administrative hours, these are not direct patient care services. These are administrative services. So just because a physician is at the hospital does not mean that the entire time that they're at the hospital, they should be paid a medical director fee. It's only when they are providing separate, identifiable, administrative medical director services. And so these would not be for services when they are actually performing direct patient care for which they can build a professional component. So if during an hour, a physician is seeing patients and billing for those patient encounters, those are not medical director hours for which the hospital can compensate the physician. So you want to make sure that as hours are being documented, and, and I get it, uh, you know, during the day, the, the physician, physician could be seeing patients, and in between patients, people could be asking the physician about issues that relate to the medical director services. So maybe that's 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. But at the aggregate, the physician on that day would have to say, well, on the aggregate, I probably spent two hours on administrative services where I was spending uh, eight hours with direct patient care services. So it's only those two hours of administrative services that we can compensate the physician for. Now, I have mentioned fair market value for the hourly payment. So it's critical in a medical director arrangement that we do calculate a fair market value hourly rate. And when I'm evaluating medical directorships, and I understand that there, there is some benchmark ranges that focuses specifically on medical director compensation, very few respondents uh, to those surveys. So here's what I'm going to say, and I've said this at many conferences, and I believe that it is wholly defensible. Uh, that You can ask yourself two questions, and if you an answer both of those questions in the affirmative, then you can use clinical benchmark data in a medical director arrangement. The first question is, do we need a physician to perform these services? So if you answer that question, yes, then you need to go on to the second question. The second question is, do we need a physician of a particular specialty? Do we need to have an orthopedic surgeon over the orthopedic service line? And if that answer is yes, then I believe you can align the hourly rate with the clinical benchmark data as you apply it to the medical director role. If you only answer the first question in the affirmative, then you may not need to have that orthopedic surgeon perform the quality review uh, or be the general uh, medical director, in which case then I would say that you could look at the clinical benchmark data for uh, primary care. Uh, I usually go to internal medicine. And then if you can establish the hourly rate, and just like I have in other Stark Integrity episodes and how you apply the benchmark data to the particular position, uh, becomes a, a work uh, of looking at their productivity, uh, their experience, etc., which I'll get into next. But I wanted to, to make sure that I emphasize that, that I do believe it is defensible to use the clinical benchmark data and apply it to the medical director arrangements with the assumption that you need a doctor of a particular specialty. And also when you're evaluating where the physician should be placed on the spectrum of the benchmark data, I mean, usually you are going to physicians who are well-experienced 
And uh, so these are usually your productive physician. You're not going to turn to a physician just out of residency uh, to become the medical director. So you know, based upon that is further evidence of the use of the clinical benchmark data. And usually you can align it to the higher end of that clinical benchmark range as you apply it to the medical director administrative services. So again, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Everything is dependent upon the facts and circumstances as you apply the clinical benchmark data to the medical director administrative roles. So next I'm going to turn to, okay, what documents should we be reviewing as we're evaluating uh, these arrangements? So first off, look at the proposed agreement. We want to have a detailed description of all the tasks, duties, responsibilities, and accountabilities of that physician with respect to that role. You look at other agreements uh, for other medical director agreements within the organization to make sure that you're being consistent. Next, you look at the board certification qualifications tenure of the physician. You look at documentation for offers made to previous medical directors. Uh, then you also want to look at the need from the medical staff perspective, the need for the, those administrative services to be performed. You can look at the medical staff bylaws as well as the charter of the medical staff or the bylaws of the hospital organization. You will look at the size of the hospital organization, number of patients, the acuity level of the patients, the number of committee meetings, like I said previously, that the medical director will be involved with and responsible for attending. You have to annually assess the effectiveness of the performance of the administrative services. If there's going to be a quality component, which I would strongly encourage, then you look at the, uh, the performance of the quality indicators that are part of the services to be rendered by the medical director. And lastly, I'm going to talk about the timesheet records. And I do have an episode on Stark Integrity uh, that I really go into great detail regarding physician documentation of medical director services. Uh, the title of that episode in Stark Integrity was called TikTok Time Reports and Stark Law Compliance, and it was issued on July 12, 2022. So you may want to listen to that. But what is important, and this is what was missing in the LaHue brothers case, is the time records, making sure that we can document and validate the services being rendered by the physician. And uh, as noted in that previous episode, there's a degree of, of defensibility or a spectrum of defensibility with respect to documentation. You can have a very detailed itemized documentation by day, by the services rendered and number of hours. And obviously that would be what I'm going to say the most defensible. Or you can chase it down to a single page where, especially if you're going to do a stipend, where the physician will basically certify month by month that they performed a minimum of X number of hours. So if the contract required the physician to perform 10 hours of per month for administrative services, then the cert certification would say during the month of November 2023, I worked a minimum of 11 hours performing medical director administrative services consistent with the contract. And usually in those certifications, I would say that they were personally performed and they were performed during a time where the physician was not being compensated from any other source, including payers of uh, patients where direct patient care services were provided by the medical director. When these timesheets are coming in, there needs to be someone evaluating 
those timesheets to make sure that the services are indeed consistent with the administrative services as detailed in the contract, that the physician did perform those services, and that we believe that they were performed separate and distinct from other services where the physician was receiving separate compensation. Like I said, from the patient's payer, Medicare, Medicaid, third-party payers. Because otherwise, that would be compensation stacking, which could result in the hourly rate being above fair market value. So this is where I get into the point that you can set up a medical director administrative service and everything would be right. You, you agree on the form of documentation that the physician is going to submit to, to support the hours rendered. But when those timesheets are coming in for payment, someone needs to evaluate the number one description of the services, making sure that they are consistent with the contract. And number two, that the hours we believe were hours actually worked and were, were capable of being worked consistent with the physician's otherwise, uh, you know, their physician practice. And I think I've said this in, in a previous uh, Stark Integrity podcast. Yeah, when I was in-house, we had a medical director, and I, and I work out. And so the, uh, at the gym, I saw this medical director, and he was on the treadmill. And he, every single day, he was reading uh, medical journals. And so I asked my assistant, I wanted to see the medical timesheets or medical director timesheets, and sure enough, this doctor was actually billing us for the hours that he was on a treadmill reading medical periodicals. Well, that was not a service that the hospital was contracting with the physician to perform. So again, we have to be very careful to make sure that the services that we're trying to pay the physician for are indeed medical director administrative services, and they are consistent with the contract, but also do not involve stacking of compensation for other sources of payment. It is now time for the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for this episode. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, you need to evaluate the commercial reasonableness of the medical director administrative arrangement, not only the establishment of but the continuation as well as the number of physicians performing the administrative services. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two focuses on fair market value. Uh, you can determine the hourly rate using clinical benchmark data if you answer those two questions. Number one, do you need a physician? And number two, do you need a physician of a particular specialty? And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three this is more from the operational perspective. When the time records are being submitted, someone needs to evaluate that the services, number one, are consistent with the services that we contracted for under the contract, uh, but number two, that we believe that the hours being documented are reasonable and do not include hours where the physician was performing services, where the physician was receiving payment or reimbursement from another source like the patient's payers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. 
You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at CaptainIntegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.